So I'm not here. Okay, it's showing the background. Yes, <laughs> my kids. Right, right. My kids like are. Music. It's we music, should. Music. We should hear the the intro of the podcast right now, but it's not happening. There is something all right, all right. with the audio. Let me. What's going on here? Translation yet? But it's not so let's go directly here maybe we can go directly welcome everybody to the strategy sprints podcast and we are here today to explore freedom community and leadership with citizen of cincinnati ohio his work is about empowerment stewardship chosen accountability and the reconciliation of community he's the author of flawless consulting stewardship the Empowered Manager, Community, the Abandoned Community, and the answer to how is yes. We will explore how leadership of the future looks like, why convening is the number one CEO task, how to effectively convene, why the small group is the unit of transformation, and how our words make a difference. Welcome, everybody. Peter Block. It's amazing. To nice, thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I really appreciate it. You have done so much impactful work with organizations, and you have written the books about how to steer organizations, how to change organizations, and why community matters. What are you currently up to, Peter? Uh, I'm trying to give form and substance to the common good. You know, we're very sophisticated in the private good. We're very sophisticated in the public. But the common good seems like a neutral way of speaking that takes us out of the divisiveness that the journalistic world loves to talk about. And so we're starting a common good collective. We're starting a common good alliance in Cincinnati. Its intention is to reduce the wealth gap is to create equity that's balanced and try to do it in a way that gives people ownership over their futures and just set instead of most more social services, more idea that more schooling, more transportation, you know, all that stuff. We've been trying to create an equitable society for as long as I've been alive. And so why shouldn't I chase and create a windmill? that has to do with the common good. So that's um, that's most of my work is about that. What is keeping us from an equitable society? We have a belief system, a language system that values individualism, values self-interest. Adam Smith, the, one of the fathers of capitalism says, if there's no interest to the individual, nothing will get produced even though his mother cooked his dinner for nothing every night of his life. And so kind of we're living under the Friedman, under the Neo, all that world that says that pursuing your self-interest is what's good for the good for the whole. Now, it's not anything to do with capitalism. Capitalism is fine. It just means other people are putting up money for you to do what you do. But it does mean that we need a larger conversation about what how to bring uh, economic well-being to our neighbors and to people around us and we haven't had that conversation and it's nothing to do with government it's nothing to do with more liberal welfare all that conversation takes us nowhere it means that the leader of an institution 
And they used to say, well, who do I want to bring into the room together to talk about what we want to create together? And uh, COVID has kind of lifted the veil of individualism and disengagement. We were disengaged before COVID. COVID just made it obvious. And so I think it's a great moment to uh, together decide what future we want to create. And that's what I've been doing. We're doing that in communities. We're doing it inside organizations. And it's not just to bring people together. It's to, it's to shift power. So peers together decide how a corporation will function. Leadership is no longer going to work as a, as a lovely, beautiful parenting function. What's your take on the communal, the movements really right now happening around the new technologies, for example, blockchain, where people wake up in the morning and do something that improves a system that is not theirs, but they do it. What motivates them? What is the, the energy behind it? Why is it so successful? It's who we are. We have a funny version of who we are. We have ourselves as, uh, you know, uh, self, this self-interest. Uh, we think we're autonomous people. I think the motivation is there. It just hasn't captured our conversation. The, but, and some of that motivation, though, is charity. And charity doesn't respect people. If I say, here, I feel bad about you, I call you a homeless person. That's not who you are. Your name is Simon. I don't care what your economic life is like. And so that's the, I think the energy, the motivation is there. The faith community has spoken of this forever. Every business has social responsibility goals. People we elect, we used to call public servants. And so I think the energy is there. It's just the structure has been captured by the, you know, the privatization of everything that matters. I heard in one of your interviews that you say the words that we use matter and uh, let's use less of the words that talk about a specific position or role that somebody has. Let's talk about what they can offer, what they can contribute, what they are good at. How can we, how can we start and hold the space for more of these conversations? Well, a, a simple way into that is to talk about focusing on people's gifts, to create a funeral service for performance reviews, which talks about what's wrong with you and how you might improve. Uh, and this is not, I'm not talking about radical stuff. It's just very simple. Why don't we focus on what you're good at? Why doesn't your job as leader find out what your people are good at and help them get that? And then make that the conversation. What do we what do we want to create together? What's the possibility we came for rather than the, the problems we came to solve? What doubts and reservations do you have? Most organizations operate on lip service. Oh, are you on board? Yeah, I'm a team player. I'm your kind of person. What do you have in mind for me? What's my future going to look like here? Why are you leaving? Well, I got more money someplace. All those conversations don't take us anywhere. They're parent-child. And so we're looking for conversations that confront people with their freedom. And if I'm choosing something, all of a sudden I become accountable. So this is really about a process of creating chosen accountability instead of enforced, coercive, we drop the language of change management. People don't like change management because it means somebody up above has something in mind for me. And it's coercive. People don't resist change. They resist coercion. And so these are all little aspects 
of the conversations leaders can initiate and ask people, what's the crossroad you're at at this stage of the game or this project? What are you good at that hasn't been fully brought to this place? Uh, what are you angry at that nobody knows about? So you're trying to create connection, talk about real things in a work setting, in a public setting. We've held safety meetings. Well, the police can't keep us safe. We keep us safe. And so you ask citizens when there's been uh, something upsetting, well, when did you first start caring about this community? And so it's a conversations in each case of accountability of what can we do instead of all this focus on the top. All the news has people in all the big buildings, whether it's the mayor or the CEO. Uh, it's just a focus that keeps us you know, stuck. And if you're doing well, you may not mind it. Does this make any sense to you? Or am I just talking? I was thinking about, do we need to wait for people in the big building to do something? The mayor should do something. Or what is the micro, what is the internal work? What is the team conversation that we can start without? Perfect. That question takes us somewhere. Uh, the micro in the community world is the neighborhood. The micro in the business world is the unit, the department, us. And we don't hold town meetings anymore because town meetings are misnamed. There's no meeting there. The leaders are given a script. They're given PowerPoint, which means that PowerPoint means I knew three days ago what I was going to say today. And then they ask their questions and they call that a conversation. It's not. So every place you go, you break people into small groups and say what matters to you. Now, you're not asking about what they had for dinner last night. The social media is not a vehicle for building community. It's nice. It's a modern telephone. It's a modern postcard but it doesn't really get us connected. What's know? missing? The, the commitment to go through the thick of it? Like, it, is it too easy to get out of it? What, what's missing? You said it, the commitment to go through the thick of it. And the thick of it is to engage in these conversations of what's up, what are we up against? What, are we, what can we do about it without judgment, without being afraid? You know, the, uh, uh, the whole crypto community has self-sovereignty. That's its role model. You probably had shows on that. But that says, I'm on my own. Leave me alone. Well, that's not the thick of it. That's a nice point of view. But the thick of it is us sitting in a room together and talking about what matters and what we're going to do about it, because most people feel helpless. And, and, uh, and then if you really you know, want to get abstract, we create a different kind of journalism, a different kind of architecture. We become more like your coffee shop. Your coffee shop, to me, is a political structure where friends and citizens get together. Now, they may talk about the mayor and the but that's not, we can change that. We can say, well, here's something to talk about. What are you doing to contribute to the very thing that you're concerned about? I mean, the conversations are, not, are there. It's just that uh, as leaders, we have to decide, well, there's certain conversations that confront people with their choices and their freedom. And my job is to do what you're doing, Simon, which is to ask questions and ask people to uh, kind of... Uh, make choices that require courage. One of the great questions is what courage is required of you now? Most of the questions are how can we provide you with the safety that you're looking for? Most people running for office say, 
I'm a supplier and you're a customer. What can I do for you? Most campaigns. You know, Germany's having a great time right now after 18 years of stability and predictability. And I'm sure everybody running for office, here's what I'm going to do for you. And I, an alternative campaign would be say, well, I'm going to, you elect me and I'm going to help you find out what you can do for you. You're not my customer. I'm not here to provide you. I don't know what's best for you. That's colonial. And so we're living in a long-term colonial era. And so what you're trying to do with these, this medium by inviting me is to say, well, maybe there's an alternative to colonialism. Maybe in the institutional setting, we can have leaders that say, well, let's get, let's have people confront the choices of freedom about the business, not about their life. I'm not interested in your career. People say, well, what do you have in mind for me? Nothing. You know, well, you're not the kind of leader I had in mind. I know I'm not. Eye contact, silence. Now, here's what we might talk about is what, what are we up against? What choices do we have? What are each of us doing to contribute? If it's a neighborhood, say, what can we do to keep each other safe, to raise each other's children? All right, deinstitutionalize my expectation. And so wherever you want to look, you find ways. And it's interesting, we're kind of evacuating the office. Well, what does that mean that half the people don't want to go back to the office? What a moment. So why don't we offer periodic gathering places where I can know that I'm not alone, but get rid of the notion that, uh, you know, we come here to meet the expectations of people that we work for. No, we're here as partners. I'm curious, because I have an assumption why, we, why nobody wants to go back to the office. Because there is no community there. There is no connection. It was like when I was studying at the university, I was studying philosophy. It was the most lonely place on the planet. We would go, hundreds of people would go to class and read books and we were lonely. So there was no community. We had no connection to each other. And whenever we would talk to others, a connection to ourselves and to others wouldn't go deeper. So my, my assumption is offices are a horror, a, a place of loneliness and transactions that don't nurture the soul, don't nurture life, don't nurture, don't make people feel more alive and more impactful. Uh, and so that's why they don't want to go there. What's, what's, what's your take? I just love the way you frame things. You're right. Uh, higher education. Now, when you got to graduate school, they broke into small groups and it was a little more interesting. All right. But the office, as we've constructed it, uh, people have to deal with their isolation. Now, the people, the real estate industry and the news industry wants us to go back to work. It's easier to cover. It pays rent. It's, people are easier to control. And so the guy running Bank of America says, oh, I got, we got two kinds of employees, the good ones and the ones who want to stay home. All right, so that, but you're right. We can create alternative ways for you to learn, like in school or in work. And it's just, a, it, nothing changes, you know. And there are examples of places doing that, but it goes against the dominant narrative advertised by the New York Times business section. Anything to do with collaboration, teamwork, they think is a charming affectation. And they're mostly interested in the big box leaders. But I think what you're saying represents the reality and if we give people an option to come together in a coffee shop style, in a gathering place where twice a week we come and we talk about what matters to us and we talk about the work, but we don't do it in a, in a pyramidal you know, office way, 
uh, something's going to happen. And I think the places that figure that out are, are that's the real innovation. It's not the latest technique to manage control and technology is, is interesting, but it's not useful. It's just convenient. It is magnificently convenient. It doesn't bring people together. Now, did it? Does it help us talk? Yeah, it has advantages. During COVID, it was nice, better than nothing. But it's not a belief that we can organize a future around. In preparation to this conversation, I went to your website and I had an experience because you you also talk about books and you talk about people who inspire you and then i was like in a conference i was like wow the so you were talking about authors that you that you know and that you work with and that you study and you were talking in a way like you talk about friends and i was feeling them like this person talks about architecture in a way that is uh, um, making people more alive or not. This person is talking about governance in this way. And I was like, wow, I want to meet these people. I want to read their books. And so it, it will take me weeks to read all these books that you that you have listed there. But it's, it's beautiful how somebody can use a website to really create a small, a small situation, space that holds complexity, that shows the points to, to different bodies of works and to different little universes. Yeah, well, the website, I called it Restore Commons. It's my favorite. And I, when I found something or saw something that t changed my thinking in my life, I wanted a place to put it. Mm. So it's like a library. But uh, I don't know. you the book represents an idea now there's more easier ways to have access but when i read christopher alexander who wrote a book called a timeless way of building i don't know where i found it i got lost in that book first of all he said and he starts every chapter he says i'm going to give you a paragraph to let you know what this chapter is about if you don't feel like reading the chapter go to the next one and then he talks about architecture in a way i'd never thought of before I never knew that the physical space was designed to give me a feeling of aliveness. And most of modern space gives me a feeling of deadness. It was designed with the architect in mind. And so for me, once I get an idea like that, I go crazy. I mean, I think, so I go find him. <laughs> I went to San Francisco and Palo Alto and met him. Same with Tim, all these people, I think, oh, my God, they've turned my world upside down. Thank you. God bless you. But I can't get it that quickly. I'm slow. And so I just, you know, now this is over 40 years. So what I'm trying to do now is create a curriculum where these people are easily accessible to all of us. A curriculum for the common good is what I'm investing in now. And to take all these things and shrink them so that you get excited by an idea like you do, which is just, I'm so grateful. And then the more excited you get, the shorter the books become. And then you realize I got it next. So there've been a half a dozen maybe, but uh, that's my major project now. I'm calling it the curriculum for the common good. So maybe in business schools, the common good will be number one class everybody has to take. And it's not political in any way. It's just said, architecture, how about a space where people feel alive? Oh, my God. Uh, there's a book called The Future of Development. And I found this guy, Gustavo Esteban, brought him to Cincinnati. And he basically says, uh, we, he's Mexican. And he says, we're not undeveloped, we're Mexican. Why did the United States decide to develop? us and it was just a modern version of colonialism a modern version of empire and i as soon as i heard that i thought oh my god and so each of these people this is what you're trying to do yes you, you know you study philosophy you're trying to apply it you're trying to offer something in the world that values ideas and 
I love that. I'm glad you found me or invited me. But I think that's all of our job is to keep thinking about how we're thinking. And the, the need for a list. I saw, I read one of your podcasts with Mr. Allen. Mm-hmm. He's a very, very practical guy. Somebody said, I'm tired of making lists. He says, grow up. <laughs> Get older, Simon. Get older. <laughs> And I thought that represents the colonial mind. He represents beautifully, warmly, the empire world, which says your job is to get something done. Make a list, blueprint, step forward. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, you fool. And so that's the dominant belief because it's profitable. And so we've automated everything, everything. And, and, and uh, it doesn't solve some things, which is our accountability, our humanity, a sense that our life meant something. And what you're doing is you're asking people to trust in what they don't know, trust in mystery. Every other part of the world wants to trust in predictability. And that's fine. If you're making something, it's fine, but it's not the point. And so that's what I've found a way to, uh, be lovingly counter alternative culture. You say, I want to create an alternative way of thinking, but I don't want to be angry in doing that. I don't want to base it on anger. So one of the things we're trying to create is, is a black economy here based on producing a black economy and ask, not asking the mayor or the police or the leaders of our institutions to do anything different. God bless you. You do what you do. You all do it with a, you know, It's hard, you do, but we have to create something together. And once we make up our mind, uh, you know, and that's the power of a thought, of an idea. And it, it loses its power when it becomes ideology, when I think the other idea is wrong. So I, one of the things I learned from a friend of mine was he would start his talks by saying, I just want to let you know, if you're going to argue with me, I'm going to take your side. What do you do with that? Well, you stop arguing. You say, tell me more about how you see the world. Tell me, you will see the world that way, fine, interesting. But we don't have to be like-minded. We just have to decide we want to, some things we care about and come together and say, what can we do to create that? And not believe that we need the bank or the mayor or the CEO or the C-suite I love that. I think they spell it should be S-W-E-E-T. Okay. <laughs> and let go of that. And uh, I need them. These people who run our businesses are brilliant. And they have the stomach for it. But I can't look to them for an alternative future. And I think people not wanting to go back to the office is a search for an alternative future because they tasted having more control over their lives. Now, it doesn't solve everything. Anyway, I talk too much. I was inspired by what I saw on your website and I was thinking, so as a team leader, as a CEO, what can I do to create that atmosphere of, hey, I'm here to cheer on and um, I'm the cheerleader of ideas and I'm the cheerleader of people who who move forward, who, who explore, who, who break stuff. And, uh, and, and I'm here to applaud and I'm here to see it and to hold the space and, uh, and to protect that it's possible. Um, and I see many, many now DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations doing beautiful things. And I see, uh, stuff built on blockchain that is distributed, that is beautiful. And I am thinking, what's actually holding us back? So sometimes I get held back by the feeling, am I crazy? Am I, uh, am I um, allowed to do it? That's, that's, that's a good one. So how can we take that question away from people? 
can, can we? Is there anything we can do? I would say, do you want to? Yes. Let me ask you again. Is this something you're committed to doing? Yes. Okay, that's a start. Now, don't be a cheerleader. I don't need a cheerleader. Mm. I need a partner. I need leadership is modeled by the way you're doing what you do, Simon. You've decided how to construct these discussions and you don't start them with a point of view. You start them with curiosity. And so I, the leaders can just say that, that when we, every time we're in a room together is the opportunity. It's no big announcement. It's no launch. All right. No town meeting, no cascading down. All right, that's beautiful waters from Hawaii, but it's not a leadership style. We're gonna give every supervisor a deck in which to talk to her people. And we stop all that and we, we show up like you do. I say, I'm, I came here to find out what you think's going on here. I'm a leader. So I'll break into small groups or not and tell me what are we up against? What's working and what's not working? And then when they say that, say, well, what role do you play in that? What can we do together? I'm here to support you. I'm here to know who you are. You have children in the other room. Your job is to find out who these people are, not to bend me, shape me any way you want me. You're not there to, that, all that thinking, please, they need your protection. And then you offer you, you, whatever people expect of you, most of it you say, no, I want you to make me say I want you to predict the future. Where am I going to be in six months? Where am I going to be in a year? And your honest answer is, I don't know. It's not for me to say. Stop looking at me as a surrogate parent. And uh, some people are so committed to safety, there's nothing you can do about it. And so you just pray, pray for them. You don't confront them. And some people are so angry, they'll never get over it. You just say, thank you, got it. I do meetings all the time in communities and some people are just really angry. And that's why I break them into small groups because I don't want the angry people to decide what's the conversation we're gonna have. And I don't mind them being angry. I've gotten used to it. I'm, I've run for office in my own little neighborhood and some people don't like me. And I worried about that. I said, oh my God. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter. If, if they're in the produce department buying vegetables, I'll walk in the produce department and say, hi, how you doing? So there's a certain uh, expectation. Leadership are imprisoned in ways by the expectations of let it go. And you're right, you do feel crazy. I feel crazy all the time. I really do, I think. Come on, Peter, get off it. You know, you made it, you know, guy, get off it. And then once I, then I meet you for a minute and I say, well, at least there's two of us that are crazy. Maybe there's five. And then I realize I'm not alone because most of the time you think you're alone. What's the matter with me? Everybody else here seems fine, you know? And then the, the third thing is, you know, there's nothing to work on. You're fine. You're a human being. And this whole notion of self-development is an act of violence. What do you mean self-development? I'm not great. I got weaknesses. I, I got deficiencies that I'm so familiar with. I've had them for eight decades. They're not going away. So let it go. You're fine. And so, you know, at a relational level, you say, well, let's find out what you love to do. What are you good at? I'm not interested in your weaknesses. I'm really not. Unless I want to make money off of you. And then I got 15 questionnaires on my shelf I can use to help you go deeper into. So, you know, you can take it between us. You can take it in a class. You can take it in an office. You can take it in a neighborhood. You can take it in a nation. And uh, it helps maybe the purpose of your show is to let people know they're not crazy. 
my my experience has been most of my life that I feel like am I crazy or is or is or everybody and mostly I think it's me and uh, and it's it's probably the case and uh, as when when we come together as a team I have found that the best way for us to start the team meeting the weekly meeting is to ask what was your week what was a special moment in your week and everybody tells what was a highlight of their week before we go into any topics and um, and also to let the topics emerge during uh, the meeting because um, I, I have decades of open space like you I was the, I was uh, Simon is the open space guy so I I have I went through the anxieties that you have when you let uh, conversations go in large groups and you think oh my god what will happen and then you see that you can trust the process people will find a way back they will find clarity if they need clarity they will find emotions if they need emotions they will find everything and they will come back and they will move on yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm curious what can we share with people about how meetings can be in these very funky times, in these tough times where we come together in Zoom. And um, I guess there is, there is... I just, everything you're saying is just so powerful, Simon. It is, you know, I wouldn't ask them about their week. I would ask them why, What's, what, why was it important for you to come to this meeting? What's on your mind at this moment about us? Okay, you know, the, the, but everything else you describe is, and you're describing faith. People say, well, people, are you, are you optimistic? I said, not particularly. Are you pessimistic? Not particularly. Uh, do you have hope for the future? That question seems silly. So what? I do have faith, though, and that's what you're expressing, that if you get people together and give them some space, they will come and get to the point. And, and we can think that way, we can design that way, we can structure the world that way. And it does take faith in each other. And I, like you, have been through a thousand meetings where halfway through I thought, oh my God, you know, and I, uh, but there are processes like Open Space or World Cafe or the six conversations that I've played with that engage people in ways that they feel less alone, less crazy, less wrong, and then something important gets produced and it's accountability as we get produced. And, you know, uh, you're being a platform for that is very powerful. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you're not crazy. You're just out of sync, that's all. Thank God. Tell us about the six conversations. Well, I just learned that all transformation is linguistic. So nothing gets, a building doesn't get created, it starts with a conversation. Some conversations are powerful and some aren't. Complaining is not powerful. Why? It leaves you feeling helpless. Uh, what's powerful is certain questions. And just over the years, I've kept collecting questions that I know if you answer them, you're doomed. If I ask you, what's the crossroads you're at at this stage of your life? What are you going to do with that? Well, you're going to talk as if you have choice over your life. If I ask you, what's the gift you've not fully brought into the world? What are you talking about? Leave me alone. I want my mommy. All right. <laughs> if I say, what's the resentment you have nobody knows about? Are you kidding? Come on. You know, the, the white male learning position. Come on, man. I didn't cover that. And so you find those questions that in the act of answering them, you become more accountable, more connected, less alone with another or three human beings. And once you answer it and hear other people's answer, then all of a sudden you're connected in a way that allows you to create something together. I'm not alone. It's a big deal. And, you know, it's, it's hard to explain, but on Zoom now, we hold conversations 
We start with a song. Then we have poetry. Then we put people in small groups and say, what are you doing here? Why didn't you show up for this? You had an option. The dog ate your homework. Why didn't you stay home and watch the dog? Okay. And then we give content. And then when they do content, we ask personal questions. You know, what shifted for you in what you just heard? What you think about that? And you never talk more than 15 minutes. And you break them into small groups. And then when they come back, and you can have 500 people on the call. It doesn't matter. So you, so you got 120 small groups, 200. Zoom's got limits. So you, all right. And when you come back, you say, what struck you? See, what, what you're playing with, Simon, is lightning. Lightning is, we, I want to be struck by lightning. I don't want to have to have, for men, it's a heart attack or divorce before they start thinking. Well, save me from those. Let me just do lightning. And so you say, what struck you? And so even in this strange Zoom thing with 300, 400, 500 people, everybody's found two other people. And they fall in love with each other if you give them a good question. They wouldn't, I wouldn't promise that. But you say, God, I'm not as alone. And, then you, and so you kind of weave even the strictures of virtual world. And you end with uh, people sharing what touched them. You use words like that. And you end with song. You end with a poem. And you say, thank you for being here. And, you know, get the chat involved. So no matter what the world hands you, even a blank, blank screen, you always have a choice how to humanize it and do it in a way that says whoever showed up is creating this experience. I'm not here to be entertained. I'm here to move the action forward. And that's what you're doing. I mean, what you're thinking the way you're doing this and the care you're giving to what you're doing is just stunning. It's amazing. I'm grateful to be part of it. And I'm inspired. Yes, more songs, more poetry at the beginning of things and at the end of things. This is beautiful and can be done via Zoom. We have one song. My favorite song in the world is called I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free. So when we do these conversations, we have different variations of that song, which in that song, Damn it, that's what I came for, you know? And, and so it becomes an anthem. And, and it says that all transformation comes through, in addition to language, art, things that can't be explained, poetry. And we repeat them at the end of the show. And so it, it gives it, uh, you come with aspects of humanity that you bring even though you can't explain it. Some people say, I didn't come for that. I know you didn't come for that. God bless you. Now we're going to do it. Beautiful. And if people say, wow, I want to learn this, how, how to have a better flow uh, when I come together with people, can, where, where can people learn this? Where can people get watch, more? Watch Abundant Community conversations which you'll find on the common good collective just watch one you know it's an hour but you're going to waste an hour no matter what you do and, you, you, and it's not complicated it, it's just now it's not easy but it's it's intentional and you say well what are we doing well we're creating experiences what is the job of leadership is to create experiences for people to allow them to imagine uh, future distinct from the past. And that's all this stuff is. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's very uh, powerful and rare. You know. What's the job of leadership moving forward? So it's not our job to simplify things. It's not our job to create certainty in, in an uncertain 
population. Right. Beautiful. And it's not our job to cheerlead. It's not even to cheerlead or to motivate or whatever. So what Beautiful. is our job? Exactly. To engage. To confront people with their freedom in the container of why we came together. Freedom is not do your own thing. The job of the leader says we are in the, we are in the business of, of designing uh, automated ways for people to deal with their uh, with their vendors. Okay, we're in the business. We all have a purpose. In that container, that's not negotiable. And I need to lead us. Here's the business we're in. Here's the pricing structure. Now, in that container, though, I'm here to confront you with the possibility that maybe you're deciding what this business becomes. That's called freedom. Freedom is to carry the burden of accountability. And so all these questions, all these structures, open space, all these things are available to us, and they're so simple. They're just hard. And so use these things and doesn't mean you don't make up your mind. Doesn't mean if you're a leader, you don't, you got to learn to say no. Certain things are stupid. Well, if you see something stupid, say no. This is not participation for its own sake, but it is about freedom and accountability. So you say freedom is to carry the burden of accountability. So without accountability, there is no freedom? Yes, sir. Why? Because then the freedom is just license. It means there's no, we can't exist in isolation. Now, some people can go to a monastery, but even the monks get along. And so it just, it's not rewarding, it's not sustaining. I have to feel and believe that what I'm doing matters in some way. And the addiction is the loss of that faith. Why are the smartest kids in our richest neighborhoods committing suicide? Because they don't think their life mattered. They were just successful. They were just smart. And you see all these are kind of symptoms of freedom without accountability. But you got to mean the freedom. You can't just mean the accountability. And most of our language and storyline is about the accountability. Whose fault is it? Who did it? Blame. Oh, my God. Anything goes wrong in the world and, and all the energy is, I don't care whose fault it was. There's such a thing as restorative justice. I, I know a police chief who's kept 3,500 people over 10 years out of the judi judicial system because they set up a process where you sit down with the offender, the victim, and you say, I'm sorry, I did it. I won't do it again. How can I make this up to you? And then the victim and their family and community says, do we believe this guy or not? And if we do, then you create an alternative path. So that's in our culture. It's just waiting to be seen and made dominant. And all those are forms of accountability. The, the ultimate feed feeding system for helplessness is to say it wasn't my fault. It's not about guilt, like being accountable, not feel guilty. You know, there's, it's a, the accountable says, well, I'm a part of this. Let me focus on what my small hands have done and can do. And you have, you have cities like Edmonton hires community neighborhood connectors. And they go around and ask people, knock on their door and say, what are you good at? What are you willing to teach other people? Would you come to a gathering and talk about that? And it's all the same themes, how to raise a child, how to keep safe, how to create a local livelihood, how to help people who are vulnerable, how to stay healthy. My health is not determined by the healthcare system. My health is determined by my willingness to be accountable for this stupid body I was given. I didn't choose it, not the shape I wanted. It's aging faster than I'm ready for. But basically my, our health, and so at every level of being, my willing to be accountable with you changes the world. And it, it, it makes me healthy and makes businesses survive in spite of their management system. You know, I, I, people in the, in the phone company, their happiest time is right after a storm. 
because they're out in the field and they don't care what your title is. Hey, Mr. Vice President, get over there and hand me that thing. And they feel useful. They feel now I can create safety for my neighborhood. Tell me to stop. <laughs> no, absolutely. I would love to go on forever. And so people, but this conversation doesn't doesn't stop here. There is your website with a ton of inspiring people. You say these are people who inspire us and you have a whole little um, universe there of people like you who go deeper into topics and open doors for, for, for thinking and for experiencing topics in a new way. Please, people, uh, go to the website. And uh, if people want to uh, ask you even more questions, where can they reach you, Peter? Uh, well, they can. there's a peterblock.com website. There's a designlearning.com website. There's a Restore Commons website. Uh, they can write me at the pbi at att.net and uh or they can just swim in this content because this content is all around us we just haven't decided it's dominant but really the reason we feel crazy is because we're living into an alternative to the dominant narrative and the dominant narrative is very simple it's just it's a colonial empire you know, uh, leadership is cause and we're effect. Uh, you and I are easily found. And thank you for creating a, I don't know, your own call, your own song. Your own. You found a way to take your philosophy into places that the philosophers who taught you at school haven't even dreamed of. Thank you. Is there any question that I forgot to ask you? No, I, no, I'm grateful for your statements. And uh, I'm, I don't know, I just any way I can ever support you, let me know. Thank you, Peter, for your generously sharing your wisdom, your journey with us. And please come back soon. 